Welcome to Chowder and Grits, the podcast for Virginia Tech and ACC Sports. I'm Justin Coachella alongside Tim Hurth. It is Wednesday, August 31st, and we are previewing the upcoming 2022 Virginia Tech Hokies football season. The Brent Pry era officially kicks off in two days on a Friday night, of course, against Old Dominion. We're going to look at the Hokies up and down, uh, discuss things to kind of watch for, expectations, um, and just a lot of question marks because we have no idea what to expect because we've never seen this coaching staff. We've never seen Brent Pry as a uh, head coach before, but it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. But before all that, Tim, what's going on? You know, just biding my time here until week one gets here. Uh, week zero was kind of nice to get some college football in wall to wall. Scott Frost seat is anything but chilly at the moment, um, but that was the most predictable collapse I've ever seen. Nebraska just finds a way to get in its own way constantly. So and, uh, I've got a hot take here. Yeah. Did Nebraska really collapse? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, they did. And it was because of that stupid onside kick. I don't know if you were watching the game. So I wasn't watching the game, but all I heard about was this onside kick. Terrible. So I went back and I watched the extended highlight. So my thing on that onside kick is, do I ever like doing an onside kick after you've scored two touchdowns in a row and taken back complete control of the game? No. Is that the first time that's ever happened in the history of football? It happens a lot, actually. Yeah. And my thing with that onside kick, it's 28-17. It's early third quarter. Not even yeah. minute. There's 10 minutes left in the third quarter. Yeah, it's, it's they a half did a game. Not, they did not lose the game because of that. They lost the game because they're pretty much inferior in every way, whether or not that's coaching or football wise i mean look at like northwestern had a had a bad year last year but top to bottom they are far and away a better program than nebraska has been in 20 years they win at northwestern yeah, they don't win yeah, consistently it's true look, but they look, win it, it's true i thought helensky wasn't way better than anybody thought he would be he was mostly a game manager highly accurate not really pushing the ball down the field the thing that, that kind of took me off guard was Nebraska got manhandled on the offensive and defensive lines. I mean, just they're supposed to have better athletes. They're supposed to be physically stronger, um, and they just they can't figure it out. I, I will say, Helensky was great. Nebraska I think Pat lost Fitzgerald, they stopped the run. Pat Fitzgerald is a great coach. He outcoached the hell out of Scott Frost. Scott he Frost will, okay. seemed to make no adjustments at halftime in that game. Uh, which is kind of the uh, that's what he does. He doesn't make adjustments, but I I really do think that the effect of that onside kick, you could feel the momentum completely evaporate. At the time they tried that onside kick, Nebraska was you felt them rolling. Finally, you could see that athleticism shining. I think it was off the back of a 50 yard touchdown run uh, that scored prior to that onside kick. And you could feel it. Watching it live, you could feel it. As soon as that happened, I knew Northwestern was going to get back into that game and they were going to stop the bleeding. And it just it was so unnecessary at that moment. Um, you know, but I think they just overthought it a little bit. They uh Scott Frost got a lot of criticism for not having a special teams coach. And I think this was one of those times where they hired a special teams coach in the offseason. And maybe they just tried to kind of showcase what it's like to have a special teams coach and try a little tricky, dicky special teams move, and it blew up in their face. Um, mm-hmm. But I will say, bad look from Scott Frost to throw uh, Whipple under the bus after his first game as offensive coordinator. I thought that was a terrible quote, and people online are trying to dissect, was he lumping himself in with the lack of creativity in offense? And I I don't buy that. Um, yeah. To, to me, it just I mean, listen, like a guy Scott's, who's deflected. Scott Frost throws everybody under the bus. This is not new. Right. He's, um, I mean, Nebraska's in the, the same situation Virginia Tech was in last year with uh, a coach where they, they know what's coming. The difference with them is I think Frost's uh, buyout drops some point in October. So I think Mark Whipple will probably be the interim there for uh, probably majority of the season. If uh, we're being honest, but yeah, either way, like I just thought it was interesting. Like I think it got magnified because it's Scott Frost in Nebraska. Um, But really, if you stop and look at it, there's still, 
you know, 25 minutes left in the game, you know, you're only up 11. It's not like they were up 21. And then they they just got absolutely dominated the rest of the game. So there's no yeah. doubt Swift or, you know, change momentum and things like that. But, you know, either way. It's a funny thing in college football, man. I mean, it's Nebraska football, like corn and stuff. I mean, who cares, right? I mean, we're talking about real football right now. We're talking. I care. Every time I look at that, I remember the Danny Cole non touchdown reception that we all thought was a touchdown live. Dyrell Roberts in the back of the end zone there a couple plays later. Um, I have fond memories of Nebraska, at least where that game is concerned. Home and away against them. And I want to say 08 and 09, or maybe yeah. it was 07 and 08. And Virginia Tech went 2 and 0, not to brag. But we're, um, like I said, two days away from kickoff. It's, um, I was thinking about it. It's our first Hokies football preview outside of the Fuente era. So that I'm excited about. Oh, nice. That's the last time. We talk about Fuente because we're not here to talk about the past, Tim. We're here to talk about today in the future of Virginia Tech football. I'm going to hold you to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of questions. I'm not going to lie. And uh, we're going to preview Old Dominion right after this. It's going to be another episode coming to you back to back. Um, We've been uh, struggling to get our schedules to align as uh, two middle-aged men with careers and young families may uh may run into from time to time but we'll we'll get it uh more consistent as the season starts here so appreciate you listening uh if you don't mind leave us a review share um share the wealth and and pass along the uh the podcast to anybody you know that may or may not enjoy virginia tech football even if they don't enjoy it they may after they listen to us right so let's get started i I kind of want to start with the captains, right? Because there was kind of some noise around why are there so many captains? And to me, it's it's pretty simple. You've got Brent Pry coming in, and he's trying to reposition the culture. He's trying to change the narrative around Virginia Tech football. And the only non-captain, or the only captain who is a newbie, to Virginia Tech is Grant Wells. And I mean, I think you pretty much have to make your quarterback the captain, especially one that you name the starter with a couple weeks left to go in camp. And oh yeah, a guy who's not a true freshman, right? He's got two years of experience at the uh, Power Five level or the Group of Five level. Power Five? Group of Five. Yeah, Group of Five. Group of Five. And so, you know, I think the quote that stood out to me was Pry mentioned that you know, I want them involved in high-level conversations. I want them talking to me about the culture, um, you know, talking about uniforms, how we travel, you know, procedures around uh, what is and is not positive. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, I think that is something that was severely lacking and probably the reason why he's got so many uh, different guys to point to. I mean, if you look at the defensive side, you've got Shamari Connor, you've got Narelle Pollard. You've got Peter Moore on the on the special teams unit. You've got Silas Zanzi, who's been there for a long time. Caleb Smith, former walk-on, now getting a shot as kind of the number one receiver. And then you got Dax, obviously, on the defensive side as well, and then Wells. So you've got really a myriad of guys, guys who have been there a long time for the most part. Um, and then, you know, he, he was sure to kind of cover the entire the entire team. So to me, I think that's why there were so many captains this year. I don't know if that's common at Penn State. I didn't look into it, but um, I would imagine if it's not, it's something that may change going forward. But I, I just saw a lot of noise around, geez, why are there so many captains this year? Yeah, it's not uncommon at other football programs to see five, six, seven captains. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it may be the way Penn State does it, and that might have been some research we could have done before the podcast, but um, <clears throat> didn't really think about it. You know, when you're trying to set a culture, you've got, you know, you're going to have guys that don't buy in up front. You're going to have guys that dive in wholeheartedly. And those leaders that do buy in, I think it's a nice bit of recognition to go ahead and name them captain. If they're in line with your vision, your leadership, go ahead and set the tone for the program. Get those guys, those C's on their chest, even though they probably won't have C's on their chest. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's a good look. Uh, and it's certainly not uncommon when you look at other football programs. Uh, you know, there, there's no cap on captains in college football. 
Yeah, there's no doubt. So now that we got that out of the way, let's start with the preview. And I'm going to start with the defense. You know, I feel like we always start with the offense and everybody always starts with the offense. But looking at Virginia Tech this year, they're going to win with the defense. And this is going to be a defensive-led football team. Brent Pry is a defensive guy. I think they have the most talent on the defensive side of the ball. I think they have the best two deep on the defensive side of the ball. Yep. And their defense is what is going to allow them to to stay in games. So just a recap of, of Brent Pry's resume here, and it's pretty lengthy. So um, he's an extremely accomplished defensive coordinator. You know, if you look back to his first year as D.C. in 2016, Penn State goes 11-3. and They finished seventh in the nation overall. They averaged 8.1 tackles for loss per game. Jump to 17, also go 11-2. and Earns the Broyles Award nomination. Finished seventh in FBS in scoring defense at 16.5 points per game. Sacks per game at just over three. Jump to 18. Defense leads the nation in sacks per game at 3.6, ranked fourth in tackles for loss in the country. They also ranked fifth in the country in yards per pass attempt, eighth in defensive pass efficiency, and 11th in red zone scoring percentage. 19. Again, Penn State goes 11-2. and two, And I had forgotten Penn State had so many 11-win seasons until I went back and looked at this. Yeah. They ranked eighth nationally in scoring defense, 16 points per game. Led the nation in fewish yards per carry and forced fumble. Ranked fifth in rushing defense for the entire year. 2020, again, kind of a weird year, 2020. Third in the Big Ten in total defense, 17th nationally. Second in pass defense, second in tackles for loss, fourth in rush defense. 2021, his last year as defensive coordinator at Penn State. Again, a Broyles Award nominee. If you're not familiar with the Broyles Award, top assistant in the nation, assistant coach in the nation. Ranked fourth nationally in red zone defense, seventh in scoring defense, eighth in defensive pass efficiency, and held their opponents to 4.7 yards per play. So if you look at it, since 2016, Penn State posted three seasons with 11 wins and four seasons with nine or more victories and has a Big Ten championship, all while Brent Pry was the defensive coordinator at what is known as linebacker U much thanks to Brent Bryan, the type of player that he would bring to campus there. So also finished in the FBS top 25 in total defense eight times over his entire career as a defensive coach. So very decorated. And I think, you know, that should bring some excitement to, you know, the Virginia Tech fan base because it's really kind of getting back to the roots of what Virginia Tech does. Does that mean it's going to happen this year and Virginia Tech's going to finish in the top 10 and top 20 and the top 25 and the top 30 in some of these categories? I mean, probably not. I mean, I, I guess it could happen. But if you're expecting that to happen, you, you're just setting yourself up for a letdown because it's it's unrealistic to expect at this point. You know, one thing I think is good from the philosophy that Pry's going to run is he runs a multiple 4-3 scheme. It's going to look very similar to what a Bud Foster run defense looks like. Foster would run a 4-2-5 pretty much, and he would leverage that whip linebacker as kind of this hybrid, uh, like strong side linebacker role uh, slash safety. Brent Pry's a little bit more, you know, locked and loaded on the 4-3. Uh, leverages a, a Sam and a Will linebacker, strong side, weak side. A lot of eight-man fronts, very focused on gap assignments and control. Everybody has one specific thing that they're narrowed in and focused on. And, you know, if you look at uh, the secondary at Penn State, they pretty much played zone three out of four times. Right. You know, if you compare that to last season where Virginia Tech was at defensively, they were playing man. It was probably about a 40-60 split. So I think we're going to see a lot more zone defense this year than we have in the past. Uh, you know, Pry was a guy he likes to blitz. He blitz 38% of the time on average from 2016 to 2021 at 50 plus sacks three times in that time, time frame. And, you know, I think one of the benefits that he has coming into this is 
kind of what Justin Hamilton put into motion with trying to recruit lengthier guys and bigger guys on the defensive line. So that's one of the stark contrasts between a Bud Foster and a Brent Pry defense. Bud Foster would often go after undersized defensive linemen, and that worked for the most part. You know, present day, Pry likes a lengthier guy. Hamilton liked a lengthier guy. So you've got some of those guys on the roster now, which I think is good. Um, so we'll see how that kind of progresses throughout the year. But that's kind of my introduction into the Brent Pry defense and some of the expectations around the coach and the scheme and kind of what to expect. Anything you want to add there? No, I, th- I think you're spot on. I mean, to me, it's that cultural alignment of what he does, what he specializes in, what he wants to bring. That gets us back to the whole identity thing we harped on last year, where it seemed like we were just trying to figure out what our identity was for four or five years. Um, there's no question about identity when it comes to, to what Pry wants to do. It's going to be defense first, blue collar, just like we had under Foster and Beamer. Um, I'm happy to see that alignment. Uh, you know, you, you hit on a good point, which is obviously we may not see drastic results the first year. Um, that's to be expected uh, when you consider where Brent Pry is in the process of rebuilding. But the defense, that's not to say that the coverage a bear on defense. I think that could be a pretty decent defense there. Uh, you mentioned the whip linebacker, you know, and in the Sam linebacker and Pry system is going to be really similar. He's got a pretty, you know, I think he moved Keonta Jenkins from safety to that Sam linebacker position. You got another safety in J.R. Walker um, <clears throat> that's there behind him. So that will schematically operate pretty similarly. And you're going to have a, the same kind of prototypical athlete in that position. Uh, get a guy playmaking closer to the box. So, uh, yeah, I, I think you're spot on everything you said. And I certainly can't wait for it. You know, it's one of those things where the bedrock of Virginia Tech football has felt like it's been missing for years. And establishing an identity, getting a defense that you can be proud of and plays hard-nosed football is going to go a long way. Even if the results aren't there in that first year, you're going to be able to see the beginnings of what Brent Pry wants in his vision here in the first few games. So I'm excited to see it. Yeah, no doubt. And I think, you know, just everything from the culture and aspect, you know, the lunch pails coming back. Um, yes, sir. It looks a little bit different. I think the the VT looks a little bit different on it this time around. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited about that. Looks like the Southwest Virginia shop might be releasing some lunch pail inspired uh, clothing. So uh, I'll be okay. jumping on that that wagon when that's uh, coming around. Absolutely. But um yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think there's a lot to look forward to. I think, you know, you mentioned Keonta Jenkins. Um, you know, he's a guy who everybody likes to point to. Well, you know, you start moving guys around because you have to, not because you want to. It sounds like they really thought he was a much better fit at that uh, linebacker position than he was at safety. Um, it may not be the case for everybody to switch positions, but... Um, they seem to really like him there, and the fact that he's rolling in as the starter, I think it should make you feel pretty solid. And he's he's had hype all camp, but right. <clears throat> let's um let's start up front. And I think you know a lot of what we're gonna see this year, a lot of what I'm looking forward to seeing is you know same guy, different dude, right? Yep. You know, I think that's kind of what you're expecting when you've got a new coaching staff coming in. You've got a lot of hype around the coaching staff. You know, I think a lot of people get excited and are like, well, you know, this guy was crap. This guy was crap. This guy was crap. But at the end of the day, it's just like coaches are going to coach. Players got to go out and play. And I don't I don't think it's going to be just a, a drastic, uh, just unbelievable transformation of some of these guys that we've seen for a number of years. But you do hope to see growth in areas where maybe it's been stagnant at times with the past um, past regime. But if you look at defensive line, I think that's probably one of our strongest groups on the team. You know, you've got um, Garbutt and Jalen Griffin starting at end. You've got some depth there with C.J. McCray and Cole Nelson. Cole Nelson, he's a guy who played 11 games last year pretty sparingly, um, but has gotten a lot of hype um, from yeah. the coaching staff. So there's, they seem to be pretty high on uh, on Mr. Nelson. So we'll see kind of um, what uh, what role he is involved in there doesn't seem to be much depth behind those four um so it's just kind of as the season progresses we'll see um 
who can kind of uh, jump up and and snatch some some playing time essentially. Yeah. Anything you yeah. want to highlight on those guys? Just just the depth. I mean, we're going to be talking about that a lot throughout this roster, and that's one of those things you expect in a transition period, especially when we've essentially got a lost class. I can't remember it was two or three years ago. I think we've got five guys remaining from one of our recruiting classes, maybe less than that now. Um, but we're reaping the benefits or, or the uh, repercussions from that right now. And yeah, you got it. You're a couple injuries away from real issues there on the defensive line, specifically at end. Um, you know, they've got some guys they're excited about, some guys we were excited about when they signed on as fresh and uh, Keyshawn Burgos being one of them with a 6'5 frame. Um, you know, but defensive line is a hard place to really come in and make an impact as a true freshman. So you, you're hopefully not counting on those guys when it really matters. <clears throat> yeah, and then if we move to the interior, it looks like uh, Mario Kendricks and Narelle Paul are going to hold down the one-two with Fuga being uh, a guy who's going to rotate in as essentially a one. So you've got like a pretty solid three deep there at uh, at defensive tackle. I think names we'll see will be Wilfred Panay. We'll see how he kind of develops. You know, he was the, uh, I believe he was from France, uh, came in as a tight end, transitioned to a defensive tackle last year. He's still there this year. So there's there's been some pretty positive reports around his development. Um, guys you may be looking for, like a Gunner Givens, doesn't sound like he's probably going to get a look this year. What you hope to see is when you're playing teams like Wofford or you know, other teams that we should beat uh, soundly, that's when you want to see these guys get in and, you know, play up to four games, maintain their red shirt and, and get that kind of experience, which is something Virginia Tech has struggled with in past years, really kind of getting those young guys in with like legit playing time and game experience. So yeah, uh, defensive tackle, I'm pretty, pretty high on. Me too. You know, obviously, you know what you're getting in Pollard and in Kendrick's. Um, they can be wrecking balls in the middle. But a guy I really like, too, is Fuga. I think Fuga has been a, a real solid player for us over the years. Um, and and this, is, this is a great time for him to come in. I think on the depth chart, he's listed as or, so there's basically three starters. Um, but Fuga's a guy I've got my eye on. You know, I'm really looking forward to seeing him. And, and Wolf Penne, um, you mentioned it, started off at tight end, uh, one of those guys who hadn't had a lot of football, um, but was kind of raw, athletic, um, somebody they thought they could mold into a player, move from tight end to defensive tackle. So out of curiosity, I'd love to see where he's at. You know, he's, I think, listed at 6'1", 290 on the roster. Um, so, you know, that, that's good enough size, especially on a four-down defensive tackle. 6'3", uh, 290. 6'3", 290. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. That, that's even better. Um, you like that height. Um, and certainly you want to get as close to that 300 as you can, but size, at least weight speaking, not as important in a four down as opposed to a three down. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and seeing how he develops. That'll be, uh, that'll be pretty cool to see because he's a guy we've been waiting on. Yeah. If we move over to linebacker, so we've highlighted, uh, Keonta Jenkins, uh, you've got the double safety move over to the strong side linebacker position with J.R. Walker backing him up. Uh, Dax is in the middle at Mike. I don't think there's any surprise there. He's really kind of the leader of the D. Uh, I think the big surprise is at the the Will linebacker spot, which is uh, Jaden Keller. And yeah. uh, I would say the guy he beat out is um, is Alan Tisdale most prominently. But if you look at the depth chart that was released today, they've also got Jaden McDonald on there um, listed ahead of Tisdale. Now they – there's only one one and there's no two or three. So I, I think what that's implying is that all of these guys are going to get a look, but I would imagine that's the pecking order right now. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I would say the big surprise is Keller. I mean, he's a guy, he's a redshirt freshman. He only appeared in four games last season, but they've been super high on him the entire camp. Jaden McDonald, I believe he's the kid. He's one of the McDonald brothers from Salem, if yeah. I'm remembering correctly. Uh, good size, six four two thirty one. Um, I'm excited to see see the uh, McDonald duo team up in um, in Blacksburg. But you know, I think that's one of the things that I'm kind of looking forward to this year is some of these young guys. Like I think there's been this perception around just the entire team that you know this is a bare cabinet, and I just don't think that's correct. Now, is there a lot of depth everywhere? No, but I think there's a lot of unknowns when you get to that depth. So there may be more depth 
than we think as the season wears on. But I think if you have to get into that depth early on in the season, that's where you're going to be most concerned, right? Because you don't want to necessarily see these guys who have been through one or two camps and they're just not ready physically or mentally or whatever it is, get on the field in a big situation and cost the team a game. But it seems like this coaching staff is high enough on a lot of these younger guys to put them in positions to to start and play right away. Because if you've got two redshirt freshmen who are ready to go at the will spot, I mean, that should give us some excitement around what to expect for the next four years from that linebacker group. Yeah, and you're seeing some rain. Some rangy guys out there. I I think there was an emphasis on getting more speed in that linebacker unit um, and getting more speed on the field. I I think especially last year, that was a place where we were let down uh, on quite a few occasions. The lateral quickness of our linebackers just wasn't quite good enough um, going sideline to sideline. And I think that's a a place we've seemingly wanted to enforce. Uh, You know, I I like to see those 6'3", 6'4", guys in there. Um, you know, weights are a little down from what you would expect from power five linebackers and two twenties, two thirties. Um, but again, all that's about getting speed, you know, onto the field. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to just see how these linebackers are leveraged. You know, when you talk about a Brent pry defense, a lot of that that comes with it is blitzing and it'll be interesting to see the blitz packages we work up out of this group. And, you know, it's nice to have an anchor like Dax Hollifield in the center. Um, that that's just really good to have somebody like that with a new coaching staff who's been around as long as he has that can help uh you know craft this culture in the right way and he's right there in the middle leading the defense so um yeah i I don't know what to expect out of this linebacker group i think we've got one known and that's about it um so that's an interesting place to be uh but i think there is potential this ends up being a pretty good unit uh obviously just like it was with the defensive line depth is an issue you mentioned that um, but you know, we, we say depth is an issue and I think you said, you know, what we really have are questions here. Um, it's hard. You don't want to compare staff to staff, but just a change in scheme, a change in voice, a change in coaching can really, really improve a team and individuals. And it'll be interesting to see what kind of steps some of these guys that were on the roster last year have taken in the off season. Uh, a unit that I'm excited about is the secondary just as a whole. Oh, I think yes. Virginia Tech will be very strong in the secondary and hopefully be anchored by a strong defensive line as well. So um, I think those are the two groups on the defense where you really look at and you say these are two of the strongest groups on the team. Dorian Strong, hard to believe he's a junior already. Wow. But he is uh, the clear number one at corner. Then you've got Armani Chapman, Breon Murray is kind of the 1A, 1B option on the other side. Uh, DJ Harvey, uh, sounds like he's going to be the guy who they call on in nickel situations, um, and also the two behind Strong. So uh, it'll be exciting to see him uh, get some get some play this year. And then if you look at safety, we've got Shamari Connor, who uh, you know his play kind of stands on its own over the last four or five years, however long he's been in Blacksburg now. And uh, Nasir Peoples at safety. So uh, some young guys behind them, like Jalen Stroman and uh, Nyquee Hawkins um, is is more of a, you know, a older guy with more experience as far as like years go, but um, inexperienced from a playing standpoint. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. You know, hopefully those guys can stay healthy and then, um, you know, work in some, um, some reps where needed. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that, that's a, a unit that could change the outcome of the season um, talking about, you know, maybe some turnovers on defense leading to points. Uh, there's a lot of guys that make plays in the backfield looking at you, Chamari Connor. Um, you know, we've got some good cover guys there. I think of all the units on the field, this is the one I'm most confident in. Um, I, I think that would probably be the case for most folks that are looking at this roster. Uh, yeah. But, but like you said, the hallmark of prior Virginia Tech defenses was always the ability to create turnovers, create havoc, get points on the board. Um, we didn't see a whole lot of that in the past few years, uh, but I, I think we could be looking at a group here that could take us right back into that pretty quickly. So I'm excited to see what they do um, and, and certainly the most confidence out of the other groups. Again, though, depth still kind of a question there. Um, really the whole theme with the entire team. So it's going to sound super repetitive. Uh, but staying healthy going to be key. So Dwight Galton, that strength and conditioning staff, we're going to hope have uh, got these guys prepared and flexible for the season to come because uh, we're going to need a lack of injuries here. 
Yeah, so I mean, I think overall, like you said, I think this is the the group on the team that's going to take Virginia Tech to where they can go and then hope the offense can can step up and help them win some games. But it's going to be up to the to the defense to put Virginia Tech in a position to win, in my opinion, and then the offense is going to have to supplement that. So, you know, I think the, the big thing, if you look across the ACC, is quarterback play. I mean, everybody likes to uh, to jump on the ACC as not being great at football, and honestly, it's a pretty subpar product. It has been for a long time. Uh, but if you look across the conference, there's a lot of really good quarterbacks. You know, and Virginia yeah. Tech's going to play a lot of those guys this year. Tyler Van Dyke at Miami, Devin Leary at NC State. You know, those are the two that come off the head. Brendan Armstrong at uh, UVA. You know, those are good quarterbacks. And so uh, if you can neutralize them and, you know, keep them contained, you look at a Keaton Slovis, who to me is about as subpar quarterback as you can be with no running game at Pitt, which they haven't had since 2018. Not sure why they're getting so much hype. That's for a different conversation. You know, Virginia Tech should be able to go into these games and compete. And there's nobody on this on this schedule, and we'll talk about schedule in a bit, that you, you look at and say, like, yeah, there's zero chance Virginia Tech can win that game. You can say that on the flip side, too. Like, yeah, Virginia Tech could probably lose a majority of these games, and they could. And that's just kind of where they're at as a program right now. But um, we'll see how they kind of develop and mold over the year but let's jump to the offense and then we'll talk about the schedule because I'm, I'm really jacked to talk about the schedule if you can't tell but um i mean offensively like it starts it begins and ends with grant wells i mean he's he's gonna be the guy that's ticking the clock this year and yeah. uh you know it may be unfair but that's just the way it is you know welcome to the quarterback position i guess and Wells is a guy who, you know, he threw for 3,500 yards last season. That would have put him uh, second all-time on Virginia Tech's list as far as single season goes. He attempted 445 passes. The most ever thrown by a Virginia Tech quarterback was 441 by Michael Brewer, uh, our boy. And yeah. then last season, comparatively, Virginia Tech threw 110 less passes, which was third fewest in the ACC. Now, there's good and bad with Wells. You know, one, he's a volume passer. At least he wasn't Marshall. Uh, he also had a 2.9% interception rate last season, which ranked 110th in the FBS out of 160 quarterbacks. Second to last on that list, Jason Brown. So uh, mm -hmm. that's an interesting um, spot to be in from the quarterback position-wise, uh, at least the guys with experience. And then, you know, you look at Wells overall, it's it's just hard to compare what they were doing at Marshall Group of five conference, you know, much different situation, different talent around them. My biggest thing with Grant Wells this year is I just I don't know how we're going to use him because um, you got Tyler Bowen, who is back in the college game. He took a year off to go to Jacksonville in the NFL as the tight ends coach. He really only spent one year as like uh, the lead offensive coordinator at Penn State after um, Ronnie, who's at Old Dominion, left. Yep. So he kind of filled in for him. So the thing with Bowen you look at is he he's going to focus in on the tight end, you'd imagine. He's going to want to run the ball. Yep. And I just don't know how much Virginia Tech is set up for that this year. I, I'm not sure what Virginia Tech is set up for this year offensively and so i think that's yeah. what we have to find out you know because they've got some running back names that we're familiar with there's an injured malachi thomas who's not going to be ready to go for the start of the season he's week to week with some kind of foot injury right then you've got jalen holston Deshaun king you know so there there's some names that we know and we're familiar with but we just they're guys who have been around for a number of years and we kind of know who they are at this point, right. it, it would be unrealistic to put the entire offensive philosophy on those guys. So we'll basically have to see what we get. I mean, if you look at Wells, he was only pressured on 19 and a half percent of his dropbacks last year, which was fourth nationally, fourth best by the Marshall offensive line. Um, when pressured, he threw for less than 50 percent 
completion percentage, 476 yards, one touchdown and four picks, which is good for 84th nationally in pass efficiency. Pro Football Focus ranked him as the 43rd quarterback overall in the nation in pass efficiency. So that's just to kind of give you an idea of kind of quarterback Grant Wells is. We'll see how it develops. He's got a new coaching staff. He's got Brad Glenn. So, you know, Brad Glenn, is he's a guy who we highlighted earlier in the offseason. Um, he's really excited about Grant Wells. So that's kind of the the overview there. But there's really just a bunch of unknowns. We just don't we just don't know. We don't know how we're going to use the guy. Yeah, that's what makes this season so exciting is there's unknowns all over the place. Grant Wells, probably the most exciting of all of them, to me, at least when you talk about his profile versus what we have seen. I think parts of our frustration last year, the year before, was the overall conservative nature of our passing game in general, um, where it felt like we just weren't pushing the envelope enough. We weren't going vertical enough. We weren't trying to make the deep throws to maybe get some chunk plays. I think you're going to see that, whether or not it's built off the play action mainly, how they're going to scheme it up. It's a little harder to say. Obviously, there's not a lot of tape on Bowen and what he wants to do. Um, I think what will be key will be balance. I know based on what Pry has said to this point, he said he's, you know, something along the lines of, you know, he's been watching offenses and he's been a defensive coordinator for so long that he knows what offenses are hard for defensive coordinators to prepare for. Reading in between the lines, I think when a defensive coordinator says that, they mean an offense that can throw efficiently and run well. Um, those are always the hardest to game plan for if you can do both well. So what I expect is a 50-50 split between passing and running. I don't think we're going to see a passing offense that was as pass-heavy as Marshall. Marshall was borderline air raid offense um, with those throwing numbers. Uh, but Grant Wells is not a game manager, which excites me. Um, Grant Wells is a guy that isn't afraid to put it in tight windows, isn't afraid to sling it. Um, and that's something that we just didn't have last year, right? We had a dynamic playmaker on the ground who was extremely conservative with his arm, more like a game manager with wheels than anything else. With uh, Wells, we're not going to see that. He wasn't allowed to make his own decisions in the run game. Correct, correct, which we said we weren't going to mention the last staff, so – yeah, we won't we won't get oh, into that. Pointing out a difference between this year and last year. <laughs> but I am extremely excited to see what Grant is able to do. I think we were lucky to get him. Um, you know, I think the ceiling is rather high with him, and I think he's got the right kind of I don't know profile for a quarterback that you want to see with an offense looking to uh, make a stamp, looking to make an impression. Um, he, he's not the guy that's going to go out there play conservative football, not throw any interceptions for multiple weeks. Um, and not take risks. It's going to be quite the opposite. What what I am interested to see, though, is how we scheme around him, because I, I would be willing to bet it's going to be a little bit different than what they were working with at Marshall in regards to scheme. So, um, yeah, I'm jacked. I'm jacked. Now, behind him, you, we do have a bit of a game manager, um, and, th and that's not a knock at all. Um, I think we are lucky to have two transfer quarterbacks that both have played in big games. Uh, Brown winning some rather large ones at South Carolina was helpful, but two very different type of quarterbacks. I, I, if something were to happen to Grant, I think we can feel pretty good that we're going to have a quarterback uh, behind him who will be a bit more of a game manager and keep us in ball games. So I'm pretty happy where the quarterback room is right now. Yeah. And honestly, like uh, it's interesting. If you look at the depth chart that was released today, you don't even see Taj Bullock's name listed. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, and so he was basically the only guy we had, you know, that's in the quarterback room coming into this season. So it could be much worse for Virginia Tech. I do think Grant Wells was a big get uh, for this staff. And hopefully he's more of a bridge, more than just a bridge quarterback and more than just a game manager. He's somebody who can go out there. He can definitely take the top off of defense. Oh, yeah. I think that's where he was most dangerous was on the deep ball last year, um, especially passes over 20 yards. And, yeah, he's going to throw some picks. So that you're going to have to live with the good and the bad. He's kind of a gunslinger mentality, and uh, it is what it is. But, um, you know, I think that'll be good for this offense. I think we'll see a lot more fireworks and a lot more chances being taken. Um, yeah. We just may see more turnovers when it comes to that, which uh, you got to take to go with the bad sometimes. Running back, we kind of hit on a little bit. I mean, again, you know, if you look at the depth chart that was released, Jalen Holston, Keyshawn King, Chance Black, one, two, three. Um, you know, there has been some talk around Keyshawn King. The coaching staff seems to like him quite a bit, but uh, doesn't feel like they're ready to put the ring on it, if you know what I mean. So still some development things there. I think 
King has been hinted at being used as a kick returner. Um, and I didn't have notes to talk about that much, but it sounds like DJ Harvey may be our punt return option. Um, at wide receiver, it's it's an interesting group because we've got Caleb Smith, who's kind of like the the one, right? Um, I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. I think Caleb Smith is a solid football player. Uh, I don't think he's going to put the fear into any defensive coordinators. The guy that I really, really want to see emerge out of this group is Dwayne Lofton. Um, and I think he can. I think he could be the guy who really <clears throat> takes the top off the defense. Um, and then you mix in a guy like Jaden Blue, who's probably going to be yeah. utilizing the slot a little bit more. But kind of the surprise was uh, Steven Gosnell as the uh, number three receiver overall, who's the transfer from Carolina. So um, he's he's a guy who's had some hype in the past, hasn't been able to really put it together. But, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what can happen. So they, they've got an interesting room. I'm not ready to say it's a, a weak group of receivers at all. I'd feel a lot better if Tavion Robinson was still there. Yeah, um, for sure. But he's he's obviously at, uh, at Kentucky now, um, so good luck to him. Um, but, you know, you got Jaden Blue, who had a really good, I believe it was a 2019 for Temple. Yep. Um, so you've got some guys who have really flashed in the past. Dwayne Lofton didn't really have much of an opportunity last year, did burn his red shirt, unfortunately. So uh, you really hope to see him get a, a big opportunity to shine in this offense. And then tight end. We'll just throw tight ends in with this. Sure. You know, I think Nick Gallo and Drake Dulius, I mean, I, I think those are some pretty solid veteran tight ends that uh, may be a pretty big centerpiece of this offense. And then you throw in kind of a wild card like Connor Blumrick, who's not going to be your lineup at the tight end spot every single play he's probably going to be used as kind of like an H back like yeah. Dalton yeah. Keene was in the backfield maybe in the the wild turkey formation maybe split out wide at the tight end spot so we'll see how they uh how they use Blumrick they seem to like him um <clears throat> but he's really more of kind of a gadget guy I would think for this offense yeah I feel good about the tight end room I think what, there's more known quantities there outside of obviously not knowing what Connor's going to be able to give you lining up across multiple positions I wouldn't be surprised to see him split out wide at points um, especially in the red zone I, I think what we've got here is a group that could be decent to good um, but not one with a lot of proven uh, results so it, it'll be interesting to see one of the biggest shortcomings I, I think last year especially with the quarterback situation was we didn't get to see a lot of really guys emerge in that wide receiver room really the the production was top heavy what little production there was you know it wasn't one of the guys you know our quarterback wasn't going to get six seven wide receivers involved like some teams are able to do so now we've got a room that's unproven. I, I do like some of the uh, the players we've gotten there. I think I think Blue has potential to be a really good receiver, especially working out of that slot. Dwayne Lofton, another guy you mentioned. One of the things that we need to do is be able to stretch the field. Not sure we've got that. If we are able to stretch the field, I do feel pretty confident that it, a good bit of that's going to come from Lofton. Um, I think Caleb Smith can give you that. I, I think he's faster than maybe we think he is um, based on what we've seen to this point. Um, and, and Caleb, a guy with a lot to prove. And you talk about a fifth-year senior like Caleb, that's going to be the leader of this unit. And I'm really hoping for a big year from him. But all the wide receivers in general, that's what's going to make watching this year so exciting for me. We've got the quarterback. We don't know what we're going to get. We don't really know what we're going to get out of the wide receivers. Running backs may be a little bit more of a known quantity with the tight ends. And overall, you're going to be looking at a scheme that we can't really nail down at this point. We just haven't seen enough from Bowen or heard from him enough to know exactly what he's looking to do. So um, for me, that means excitement. Other people may see that and see reasons to be nervous. Um, I'm not there with this team this season, uh, but I, I think this group together, all of these question marks that we've talked about, it, it's I'm pretty pumped to see where we're going to end up. But this is probably one of the position groups that I'm most concerned about on this roster. Um, so being able to get some questions answered early on in the season about the productivity of the wideout spot going to be huge. Yeah, I don't know if I'd put concern at the wide receiver room, just kind of unknown is really the the way that I'm approaching it. Cause like there's, there's guys there that have produced and there's guys there that were pretty, you know, hyped up in the past as far as a recruitment standpoint. So um, I think it could be a pleasant surprise. Yeah. I hope the so. group, 
the group that um, I think is the biggest question mark on the team is his offensive line. Yeah. And it's an interesting mix of guys, and I'm actually kind of excited about the group for a couple reasons. Um, one, there's just a lot of young guys in the two deep, and typically that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't excite me. But I think with where this program is at, and the fact that we've got Joe Rudolph as the offensive line coach, uh, it's allowing him to mold these guys into the offensive linemen that uh, he wants to see. Right. So Silas Anzi's your left tackle. No surprise there. Behind him is Xavier Chaplin, a true freshman, six foot six, three hundred and thirty-eight pounds. Yeah, great size. Uh, not guy. where you, not where you on the depth chart where you want to see a true freshman. Not, not where you want the true freshman at the left yeah. tackle spot. Left guard, you've got Jesse Hansen, redshirt junior. So you got some good experience there. I don't think he's ever been a, a full-time starter necessarily. And then the guy behind him who's gotten the most hype out of probably any oh, freshman yeah. on the team is is Braylon Moore. Again, a true freshman, uh, 6'3", 290, so he's got pretty decent size. Um, and I think, you know, it, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if we see him starting at some position on the offensive line, not necessarily left guard, but um, somewhere by the end of the season. Center, you've got Johnny Jordan. Again, another senior with six years. I think this is his COVID year. Um, his second year after he transferred from Maryland. So that's some good experience at center. And then behind him, you've got Jack Hollyfield, who obviously brother of Dax, redshirt freshman, 6'3", 300. He's picked up some size, which is good. He came in as a tight end um, when he was recruited. And then right guard, Caden Moore, a sophomore, a true sophomore, yep. uh, 6'3", 313, good size there. And then Daniel uh, Militech, I guess is how you say that. Yeah. Redshirt freshman behind him. And then right tackle Parker Clements, I believe from Clo- Clover Hill High School, if I'm calling out right. Uh, redshirt sophomore, 6'7", 305. So you're kind of like Luke Tenuta size tackle. And then Bob Schick behind him, redshirt sophomore. So a ton of underclassmen. <laughs> yeah. um, and you've got basically uh, – three new starters on that offensive line. I mean, you've only got four returning starters from the offense last season. So that's kind of where Virginia Tech is at from an offensive standpoint. So it's not just a new coaching staff. It's not just a new offensive identity. It's a new group of players that are now playing for the Hokies. So um, we can kind of guess at what's going to happen all we want, but literally nobody has any idea other than the coaching staff at this standpoint about uh, what kind of unit we're going to have offensively. No, it's one of those where we've harped on depth. I told you we were going to keep doing it. This is where the depth gets really scary. True freshman on the offensive line, not something you want to see in most cases. I think probably of all positions on the field, um, tackles are right up there with probably the hardest for freshmen to come in and have an impact. And when they do, they're usually forced there by injury. I will say, all things considered about this offensive line, having Joe Rudolph lends itself to a little bit more of a calming presence than I would otherwise be based on what I see on the depth chart. You know with Joe Rudolph that you are going to maximize the abilities of everybody on that line. You know the technique is going to be right. You know they're going to be coached to one of the highest standards in Power 5 football. So with everything that we've said about this group in particular, Joe Rudolph is there, and that can only bode well. Um, and hopefully, you know, he's able to take some of those young guys, like you said, mold them the way he wants them. Um, and he certainly, you know, at least on paper, got his work cut out for him in his first year. No doubt. So let's let's jump over to the schedule and just get a uh, really meaningless prediction as far as uh, number of games we expect the Hokies to win. So if you if you look at their schedule, I kind of look at the Hokies, you know, schedule this year in a couple of different stages. You know, the first thing and I think is maybe most important from a recruiting standpoint is the Virginia games. You've got a road matchup against ODU. You're on the road at Liberty in middle of November, in late November, November 19th. You host Virginia Thanksgiving weekend. And there's somebody else Virginia wise. No. So those are those are your three Virginia games. I think it's very important for Virginia Tech to come in and set the tone that they are the program 
in the state, in the Commonwealth that oh, yeah. is to be taken seriously. And, you know, ODU will highlight um, in the next episode right after this should be available um, is an interesting matchup just because there's so much familiarity between the two. You look at Liberty, they've got, you know, Charlie Brewer there as the quarterback. So a guy who's <laughs> had some success in his college career um, and they've got some some talent there. But for the most star, that is a two to three star you at this point. And then you got UVA. He's got Tony Elliott there in his first year as head coach um, trying to install some things. They have Brennan Armstrong back. That game's so far away, it's just impossible to even talk about at this point. But I think that's important to set the stage. The other element of their schedule that's really interesting is they have five games in a row from basically October 1st through October 27th. We'll call it we'll call it starting with the West Virginia game. That is, it's a pretty difficult stretch. Yeah. You've got yeah. West Virginia at home. Then you've got North Carolina, Pitt on the road, back-to-back weeks. Then you host Miami, and then you go on the road to what I think is the best team in the ACC this year, NC State. So you've got five teams, or five games in a row right there. I mean, that's going to be a very trying and taxing stretch on this team yeah. uh, because those are some pretty good football teams. I mean, you know, it's it's a little too early to worry about rankings, but three of those teams have numbers next to their names, and I think one is probably going to get exposed on Thursday night, which is Pitt. But, um, you know, we'll see how it shakes out. And then, you know, you've got the opener with Boston College. Brent Price first game as head coach, and then obviously that Thursday night game against West Virginia is going to be uh, that it's Lane's going to be rocking for that. Oh one. yeah, so I can't wait. You really, you really hope Pry can come in and win those like really meaningful games, but then also manage those super tough stretches for a football team that's trying to find its way under a new a new regime. Yeah, um, I agree that that stretch you mentioned is extremely tough. Um, there are some winnable games. I hope I don't ever see a schedule again with ODU and Liberty on it. Um, not a knock to either of those two both programs. Away. Yeah, both away, especially. Uh, I, I hope we're not seeing that again. You know, but as far as the schedule goes, um, and I don't know if you want to get into predictions now or you wanted to yeah, wait. Um, but it. to me, this is a 500 football team. Um, I think that's assuming that there are no injury issues. I would like to hedge my bet a little bit and say, you know, if we do end up with some injury crisis, I think you're looking at a four or five one team. Um, and that's to say if the injuries are outrageous, sometimes you can have seasons like that uh, in this game and really throw you off. I just don't think we're equipped from a depth standpoint to handle a lot of injuries. But as it stands, assuming we have a pretty average season in regards to injuries, I think six wins in a bowl game um, is about where this team ends up. Yeah, so I'll I'll say six and six as well, but I'll preface it with I think that'll be overachieving for Brent Pry in, in season one. I think oh, that I totally agree. To me is the that would be such a win uh from a from a hokey standpoint and it's possible they win more. It's definitely possible they win less. Yeah. I think if you realistically at this point look at it, which is difficult to do because there there are so many unknowns if we've mentioned multiple times. Um, it's just hard to know what to expect from this team and, you know, what Brent Pry is going to be like on the sideline and what his end game decision-making is going to be like. And is Tyler Bowen ready to be the offensive coordinator? And, you know, is that offensive line just too young and too inexperienced to really hold up over the course of a season? So we'll find out. I mean, I think they've got at least two conference wins against Duke and Georgia Tech. But you never know. It's the ACC Coastal. This is the last year of Coastal chaos, and then the divisions go away. So I think, honestly, if you look at the ACC Coastal, there's one team that I think is stands out above the rest, and it pains me to say it, but it's probably Miami right now. Oh, I think 100%. they have the most talent of any team. North Carolina probably has the second most talent, but they're horribly coached. So I think yeah, that, that Carolina, defense looked bad last week too. It looks horrible. Famu. But if you look yeah. at that defense, they've got four and five stars all over the place. They do. They cannot develop 
at North Carolina. So I think, you know, you look at North Carolina, I think Pitt is way overhyped this year. Same. Um, NC State is a surefire loss, in my opinion. Yep. I would be shocked if they beat them. I would not expect them to beat Miami. But the other thing I'll say about Virginia Tech is one of the biggest pain points as a fan has been how they play at home the last few years. And they've got to get back to winning at home or right. else you can't be taken seriously as a program. I mean, it has been pathetic, their performance at home um, over the last few seasons. So if Brent Pry can come in, you know, I'm not saying he's to win every game at home, but, you know, BC that first game, that's a, that's a tough opponent to open up the career in, in Lane Stadium, make a statement there. West Virginia coming into your backyard. It's going to be a big-time environment. <laughs> Can't fall flat. So, I mean, there's going to be pressure immediately. But, again, you've got to you've got to give this coaching staff time. You've got to be able to, to look in the mirror and realize kind of where you're at as a program right now. But uh, I'm excited to see it play out. So um, what I'll say, too, about the season, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up this way. So as most people know or have known me, I am a lifelong Orioles fan. Um, you know, I was I, I had the Orioles on my groom's kick with Virginia Tech. It was Virginia Tech one layer, Baltimore on the second layer. And uh, there's just been about five years of absolute soul-sucking baseball that has come <laughs> out of that organization that has literally made me, one, not like baseball, at least baseball in the Charm City, yeah. and two— I pretty much didn't watch an Orioles game for about two and a half years. And then all of a sudden you come into this season, the over under on Baltimore is 62 games to win. And right now I think they've got 69, 68, 69 wins. They lost today against Cleveland, but they're in the thick of it in late August to make the playoffs. And they play in the best division in baseball in the AL East. So if the Orioles can do it, just about any team in sports can do it because the Orioles is an organization that's poorly run, at least from an ownership standpoint. You've got Mike Elias, who's a, a stud in the GM position, mm-hmm. but they've got a $30 million payroll. They play in the best division in baseball, and they've got two teams in their division that have payrolls over $200 million, and they're ahead of one of those teams in the standings. So the Hokies – It hasn't been much better for them since Baltimore pulled the plug on the approach that they were taking. You know, Orioles were last in the in the playoffs in 2016. Plug got pulled 2017, burned it to the ground. About September 2018 is when the fire started burning in Blacksburg. It hasn't been fun, but this has been probably one of the more fun baseball seasons I can remember at least from an Orioles perspective, because this team, you just look at them and they're not supposed to win. They're right. just not. They've just right. got a bunch of dudes who have gone out there. They play hard every night and they put it together on the field. And there's no reason Virginia Tech can't do that. I'm not saying they they have a chance of getting the college football playoff this year, but if they make it to a bowl or they beat a couple of teams that, you know, they probably shouldn't beat on paper. That's really all you can ask in this first year of of the Brent Pry area. And the vibes that you get coming out of the offseason is that, you know, it seems like the culture has definitely been set in the right direction. Now we just have to see that prove out on the field. Yeah, it, really anything, any scenario that works out with Virginia Tech in a bowl this season is a win for the first season in Brent Pry. Um, I will be absolutely ecstatic. Throw the record out the window. I don't give a damn. If we're in a bowl game at the end of the season, this has been a successful season for Brent Pry. Um, I would love to see it. I think that's a, a great point you bring up on the Orioles. Nobody saw that one coming, especially given the payroll. Um, but they're winning, and, and that's why they go out there and play, you know, play the games. And don't worry so much about the record this year. There's going to be a lot of entertaining things happening with this football program from the install of a new culture, getting to see more of the character of Brent Pry, what kind of head coach he is, how this whole thing is being put together, all new offensive and defensive schemes 
new players on both sides of the ball, underperforming players that are undoubtedly going to be the rising of falling. Um, we don't have the same expectations that we've had on this podcast the last three to four years. Um, but I would argue that where we are right now, and I know this may be different from you, I am more excited for this football season than I have been for the prior three football seasons. I am that much more excited about this team, not because I give a rip about what the final record is going to be, but just because I know that trajectory is going to be going in the right direction. And I am super excited to see some unknowns because for the longest time, it felt like we knew the record and the way the season was going to play out before it even started. And for once I got no real idea. I mean, I can say six and six, I got no clue, man. This thing could go a lot of different directions and, you know, just in, embrace the uncertainty. It's going to be a good time. No doubt. So let's, uh, we, we kind of ran out of time on, um, doing our ACC preview show. So, uh, we're going to bring you our, uh, top three ACC expectations this year. Um, Tim, what's, uh, what's, what's top of your mind for this list? Uh, expectations in regards to just anything in conference general overall. Yeah. Just things that you see playing out in the conference. Okay. I think Pitt is going to be a lot worse. And I know you agree with me on this when they're losing Kenny yeah. Pickett, the Blitnikoff award winner. Um, anytime it's rare that you see a team that isn't Clemson, Alabama, lose a quarterback, lose their offensive coordinator and not just any old offensive coordinator, arguably the most productive in recent history at a school. Um, you lose the Kenny Pickett, who played like a Heisman candidate last year. And, and you was lose, a first-round pick in the NFL. Right. The only first-round quarterback drafted this year. Right. And you lose the best wide receiver in college football. That is not a recipe for continued success on offense. And I'm not sure the defense has improved to a degree that would make up that offset. Yet, for some reason... I mean, I, I think I saw Desmond Howard had Pitt in his playoff bracket on college I game day I, last week. When I, when I see things like that, I just immediately assume Desmond needs some attention. Like, yeah. Look at me. Look what I said. And it has uh, to be. yeah, I, I did look at it because it was absolutely ridiculous. I mean, yeah. you've got Keaton Slovis in at quarterback now. Like he did nothing at Southern Cal. No. Like nothing. There's no reason to be excited about Keaton Slovis if you're a Pitt fan, to be honest. And the fact that he's coming in with the new offensive coordinator, whose name is Frank Signetti, by the way. That's, that's a great OC name. He's, he's, he's got a track record of pretty subpar success at Pitt. So <laughs> there's really not a lot to be excited about if if you're a Pitt fan from an offensive perspective. Defensively, they might be okay, but they haven't been great the last couple of years. They've been a liability at certain at certain points and you know maybe i'll leave my words you know maybe there's something at Pitt going on that i don't know at whatever the hell they call their field now that's not heinz that's reason enough that they're going to fail because it's a joke oh it's yeah it's field. it always generic will. insurance company yeah, field.com a, cru a crucis something field yeah terrible but yeah so i'm definitely i'm right there with you with Pitt. Uh, I do not think they're they're just like any other coastal team for the most part. That's they're seven and five, eight and four team. To, yeah, seven and five probably. Yeah, probably going to get spanked by West Virginia. They're probably going to get spanked by Tennessee. Tennessee's yep. going to get their hopes up, and then all of a sudden they're going to be five and seven at the end of the season, and you know complaining about you know this was their year. They're the greatest five and seven football team ever. It's Tennessee's year every off season, man. Yeah, Tennessee and Texas A&M right there. That's but right. My other thing, too, is I think Miami is best team in the Coastal, which I've mentioned. Uh, the other thing I'll say is I expect UNC to have their second straight losing season. Anyone who thinks, again, very similar to Pitt, that UNC is just going to pick up and be better without Sam Howell, they just haven't been paying attention. Sam Howell was the offense last year. Like, yeah. I mean – Two years ago, they had Javante Williams and Michael Carter. Last mm -hmm. year, it was Sam Howe. I mean, from a rushing standpoint and a— Remember, remember where we were on this podcast a year ago in regards to <laughs> UNC. You and I were saying the same exact thing about UNC. They were getting even more love than Pitt. And we came on here and said, you are not going to lose those two halfbacks along with Diami Brown and Daz Newsom on the outside— and outperform the previous season's offensive numbers, and we expected them to take a nosedive. 
we did. Now, I will say, I can't remember the, the kid's name right now. He was playing Florida A&M, looked pretty good at quarterback. But Florida A&M, not only are they Florida A&M, but they, had, they almost couldn't play that game because of a lack of players on the roster. And somehow yeah. they made that defense look like Swiss cheese. Um, yeah. Alarm bells should be going off, uh, off in Carolina. But I agree with you on that take. Another losing record from UNC. It would not surprise me. The fact that Sam Howell's not there, that's a bigger deal than most seem to make it. Yeah. And so I, I personally think Mac Brown will be retiring <laughs> at the end of the season. Because yeah. there's just been too much talent to come into that program, and there's just been nothing but mediocrity coming out. Really yep. even worse than mediocrity. So It's the Mac Brown way. Uh, my other projection is – you know, just the winner of the ACC this year. And I think that's going to be NC State. I think they're the best team top to bottom. Uh, I don't think Clemson's back. I'm not a believer in DJ Ui Ungole. And uh, I just, I, I feel like maybe Clemson is is drifting off into the sea. It just seems like things aren't going the way that they were at Clemson. And um, yeah, I think it's NC State's year. If there's a playoff team in the right. ACC, I think it's NC State. I hope you're right. I think when you talk about the most complete team in the ACC, I think NC State is the most complete team. I mean, you talk about known quantity. There's a vacuum starting up behind me, a robot vacuum. Um, I thought maybe it was a fire alarm or something. No, I didn't even know that thing was plugged in, and now it's vacuuming my floors. That's incredible. Um, Yes, NC State is the most complete team. I think you have a quarterback who is easily the best in ACC in my mind, and Devin Leary. You've got returners at virtually every position on the roster, and you have the best linebacking core in the nation, along with one of the deepest defenses in in the conference. So that wouldn't surprise me. However, the top-end talent on Clemson is scary. Um, While you would go NC State, I think I'm going to go Clemson. I think I do see a regression towards the me, the mean for DJ Uyunglele because last year was almost so incomprehensibly bad. Dab, Debo is now Dabo Debo. I never get that one right. Dabo. 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 Dabo's put all his eggs in the DJ basket. Um, the kid's got an absolute howitzer for an arm. If they can figure out how to harness him, I, th- I think he could, he could take the Tigers back to the ACC title. Um, and, that's that's what I expect to happen. I hope I'm wrong, but that is one of my projections. I think Clemson is uh, really going out on a limb there, going to win the ACC title game. All right, well, that's our show for today. Uh, can't wait for the season to officially kick off week one. Um, be sure to listen. Leave us five stars. And, uh, yeah, we're coming right back to you with a preview of the uh, matchup against Old Dominion. See you guys later. Appreciate it, guys.